last week we looked at the popular scripture that says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. And as we talked about many of your translations, if you're reading from the King James, it said, In my Father's house there are many mansions. And I encourage you, if you are not here, uh, to go back and listen to that sermon. If you're wondering how you can get that on the back of our uh, bulletin here, we have like a little... uh, I think it's called a QR code, if I'm right about that. Anyway, you scan it, you open up your phone, and you can go straight to last week's sermon. So I encourage you to check that out uh, just so we can have a fuller understanding of what we're talking about uh, today. So last week we talked about this, this mansion concept. And as we looked closely at the biblical imagery, we found that this phrase was actually a reference to something that has to do with the temple. So when we think the Father's house, we should be thinking the temple, the place where heaven and earth kind of conjoin and converge, where God and man meet. But the temple uh, isn't a reference to the physical temple that used to be in Jerusalem. That's not what Jesus is really talking about in that passage. It was referring to the temple of Christ's body, the body of Christ, which is also, by extension, the church, it's its us. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. So the Father's house with many rooms is the church with many members. We might think of it like that. Um, it is now in us that God meets. Heaven and earth come together in us. God and man come together in us, in our hearts. So we can move forward now into this chapter, seeing more clearly that it isn't talking about Uh, the second coming of Christ so much. It's not really even talking about the eternal state of heaven. It's actually talking about the present state and making a reference uh, to the, in in their days, the soon coming reality of God dwelling with man. Remember the the disciples, their hearts were troubled and he says, this is the good news, guys. You're going to have the temple right here. You're going to be with me right here. So like last week, what I'd like to do is approach this text by asking some questions. That's a good way for us to learn, kind of like our catechisms. We ask a question and then we answer it, and it really helps us to have a fuller understanding of what the Bible is saying. So the big question that we're going to look at this week and that we're going to be answering this morning is, how does Christ go to prepare a place for us? How does Christ go to prepare a place for us? So let's look now in his word in the Gospel of John. Again, that's chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. 
Lord, first, first of all, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you've given us answers to our troubled hearts, and that you call us to yourself uh, to show us your love for us. So, Lord, we come to you today in light of that, in light of your love, in light of the, the abiding presence of Jesus. We pray that your Holy Spirit that you've given to each and every one of us as believers in this room, we pray that that same Holy Spirit that has inspired the words here that we've just read, that it would in, inspire our hearts this morning from those truths. Lord, that same Holy Spirit, I pray that it would connect and bear witness with the truth therein, that we might see Jesus clearly in his message to us and his church. Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We listen now. We humbly sit at your feet. And we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to make this passage make as much sense to you as possible so that you're able to see the logical progression of Jesus as we go through chapter 14. I know I'm going very slow, but it's because there's there's a lot of misconception when we come to uh, chapter 14. I, I, I consult a lot of commentaries when I prepare my sermons, and what I've found is that many commentators have missed the whole point of this passage by disjointing it into numerous teachings. They say it's about uh, essentially three different things, and my, my argument is, no, I think they're actually talking about one big thing, and Jesus has one whole point through the whole thing. Uh, But the main thing that Jesus is getting at is the preparation of this new way of meeting with God. He's telling this to his disciples. The new way is an internal, intimate relationship with God the Father that replaces isn't even quite the right word. I think fulfills is a better word. That fulfills the physical temple's purpose. Okay? Jesus steps in and he, he, he's saying, here is the fulfillment of this physical temple, the way that you meet with God. So we are the new temple prepared by Jesus, and it is realized through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in our next sermon. That's where Jesus is going. So I want you to kind of get that logical progression that we're still talking about the same thing as last week. And next week when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, it's all connected. It's all talking about one thing. So let's begin by answering some of these questions from the text. Jesus says that he is going somewhere. I'm going to prepare a place for you, he says. So let's ask, where is Jesus going? Where is it that he's going? Well, last week we mostly focused on the reality of the Father's house with many rooms. We just said, well, this is what it's actually talking about. This is the Father's house. But we didn't look very closely at the fact that that is where Jesus is going. Jesus is going to this place. To see this further, we just need to pay attention to the text. If you look in your your text this morning, in verse 6, Jesus answers Thomas' question about where he's going by saying, no one comes to the Father... That's what he's thinking. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this implies that Jesus is going where? To the Father. Okay, so he's going to the Father. He then goes on to speak of the closeness that Jesus has with the Father. He says, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. So he's clearly still talking about where he's going in this close union with the Father. And if you look down further in your text to verse 28, he explicitly answers our question as to where he is going. So I know we didn't read that far today, but if you would look down at verse 28. It says, you heard me say to you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So the answer is clear. Jesus is going to the Father and the Father dwells in the Father's house with many rooms. But the question that we need to really be asking is, well, where is that? 
Where is the father's house? Where is the father at? Well, if you keep reading in our text again, we get these questions answered. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. It says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So where's the Father? The Father's in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay? So we, like Philip... We're empirical learners, aren't we? we? We learn by observation. We want to see things. We want the fact to be in front of us. So we, too, want to say, well, just show us the Father and it's enough. Let me see him. I want to see the Father. Just, just take us to the Father's house so we can meet the Father with you. And when we do this, we miss the point of what Jesus is really trying to tell us here. This is one of the reasons why so many people that uh, think that Jesus is talking about the second coming or heaven. They miss Jesus's metaphysical teaching that he's getting at here. What do I mean by that word? Metaphysical. Well, it means beyond the physical. It's deeper than the physical, deeper than you can see. And in a real sense, it's more real than what you can see. We often think that the most real things are the things I can touch. But guess what? You can't see and touch God. Right. And yet he is more real than we are. If there's any reality, it is God himself. So he's speaking of connecting uh, to the father in this real metaphysical sense, this internal sense that we connect with the divine. It's really amazing if you start to think about it. It really is. So this is why he says uh, verse 10 and 11. I'm just going to read it again. Thinking about this intimate union that we will have. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father's in me? So Jesus is saying that the Father's in him somehow. That answers where he's going. Uh, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, that's where the Father is. The Father dwells in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Okay, so we've answered a couple questions now, haven't we? Where's Jesus going? He's going to the Father's house where the Father resides. Where is that at? Jesus says it's in me, okay? The Father dwells in Jesus somehow, okay? And now we need to remember that place that he's going to is for us. That's kind of where I want to shift now. That place, the Father's house with many rooms, uh, the place that he's preparing for us, look at verse 2 and 3. I want you to catch what it's saying here. Verse 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I've told you that I go to you, or that I, what I've told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. So I want you to catch that here. This place is for us. He's getting something ready for us. Okay, so the question that we need to now ask is, how does Jesus prepare the Father's house for you? How does he get that ready? How does he make those preparations? How can Jesus keep his word in verse 3 that you also will somehow approach the Father in the Father's house? He says he will come and take you to himself so that where he is, you will be also. So somehow you're going to be able to go there. In other words, you will come to the Father's house. So how is he making preparations for that coming? Okay. Well, to answer this, we need to keep in our minds close the true meaning of the Father's house, don't we? What do we think of? What should we th be thinking of when we think of the Father's house? Don't think mansions, right? Don't think like uh, the Victorian really rich house or rich estate. You need to be thinking the temple. Be thinking about 
the temple. So then we go to the next question. How does one prepare to go to the temple? You have to prepare a sacrifice. You have to prepare a sacrifice. And this is the key to understanding how Jesus prepares the Father's house for us to inhabit it. The preparations that Jesus is making are not... We're not, we're not thinking about a, a house like, like we're going to go to after, after lunch. He's not making a bed. He's not dusting the furniture. He's not mopping the floors and sweeping and getting everything up. He is preparing his body, his own physical body, the location of the new temple to be sacrificed. He's getting ready to die. That's the preparation that he's talking about. The preparation he is speaking of here are the same preparations that a priest would engage in in preparation for a sacrificial ritual. This is what Jesus is talking about. It gives me chills just thinking about what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. He's getting ready for something very serious. When Jesus prepares the place for you, church, I want you to internalize this. When Jesus prepares the place for you, he's dedicating his own body as the sacrificial lamb prepared to be led to the slaughter. Do you remember what John the Baptist said the first time he said Jesus? The first thing that comes to John the Baptist's mind when he sees Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus is seen uh, to, to be in John the Baptist's mind. The one who's preparing the way. He says, this guy, he's the Lamb. He is the sacrifice. So if Jesus is talking about the temple either spiritual or physical, it really doesn't even matter. Think about this. Not just anyone can walk into the Holy of Holies, into the temple. That is a sacred space that God guards through his holiness. He is a holy God and he will not be violated. It would be a desecration for sinful human beings to walk into the presence of a holy God without some kind of reconciliatory act. Something's got to give. We can't walk into God's presence without something happening. But somehow, somehow Jesus says that he is preparing that place, that holy place, for us, the the sinful people that I just talked about. Would it be just, let me just ask this question and ask yourself, would it be just for God to look past those wretched things that you have done? Now, you know them. I don't know them. But you know what you've done. So it is God the Father... This passive father, we might think, we might say it like this, this passive dad that won't confront those issues even though, even though he knows they're there. Or he sees your sin and he's like, eh, it's fine, just come on. Is that the kind of God that we believe in? Is that the father that we believe in? No, no. God the Father is a purely holy God that takes action. He is not a passive God. He's active and he, he pursues us. He does not remain content with our sin. He's not all right with it. It is not okay for our Father in heaven uh, to look down on us and see that sin is there. He will take action. That's the kind of Father that he is. So this teaches us something about the Father here. But something must be done in order to resolve your serious problems before you walk into his presence. Because there's a brokenness in the relationship when we sin against our Father. The Father's house is holy. And he guards that holiness like all the good faithful fathers in this room should be guarding their houses against in holiness, against immorality, against all kinds of bad things that you don't want in your house. We should be guarding our house light like that. When immorality knocks on our doors, on the doors of our father, the father's houses, the good father doesn't welcome it in. It doesn't say, come on, it's fine. No. What the good father does is he steps outside 
and he takes care of the issue. And the foes won't come in unless they become friends first. That's the way that God handles issues when he brings people into his house. He steps outside and resolves the issue before anyone comes in. Something's got to give. So how do you suppose this reconciliatory act should be carried out? How is God the Father going to welcome sinful human beings like you and I? How does Jesus prepare the Father's house for you? He goes to the cross. The cross is where Jesus goes. He goes outside the walls of Jerusalem. He goes on the outside of the house. Jesus subjected himself to a sacrificial death on your behalf by going outside to pay for your sins. His blood is what pays for our sins because he died the death that we deserve. Okay? He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what Paul tells us. Somehow Christ identified with our sin by going on the cross, dying for us so that we might then become that righteousness that he is. It's an amazing exchange, isn't it? That is the great exchange of the gospel. We deserved the death that Christ willingly, lovingly, we could even say it joyfully traded for us, for the joy that was set before him. No one took his life. No one stole Jesus' life. Satan didn't kill God. Jesus laid his life down willingly. And that act of love was the Father's heart towards us. Something we need to catch about the Father. The Father isn't this mad, angry God up in the sky, and Jesus comes and calms down this bipolar dad. No, the Father commends his love towards us. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was his plan to pour out his wrath on his son, his only son, his true son. So we need to keep that in mind, too, the the framework of the Father being a loving, kind, compassionate, humble Father towards us. Okay, So remember, the house with many rooms, going back to that concept, is the body of Christ. The physical body of Christ and also the spiritual body of Christ, the the church, right? It, It all goes together. And when he goes to the cross... In his physical body, he is making preparations in the new temple for you to be able to have access to that most holy place. Let me say that word again, that most holy place, going back to the question of the place that he's preparing for us. That holy of holies is the place that he's preparing for us. That, that's the place. Remember, this was the deepest place in the temple. If you're familiar with the temple and the way that it was laid out, there was three sections. And this third section was the most holy of holy. It was, it was the holy place, the place where only the high priest could go. And even when he went, he would go in there one time a year. And when he would go in one time a year, they would tie a rope around his foot in case God struck him dead because of his sinfulness coming into the presence of a holy God. And they, they were saying, there's no way I'm going to walk in after that guy if he drops dead. I will pull him out by a rope, but I will not go in, in there after him. That is the place that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. And once it's prepared, we then have access to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk boldly with confidence into that place that people wouldn't even go in to take a dead body out of before. That's where Jesus is going to get ready for us. And that is the only way to the Father. The only way to the Father. And this is the point we're going to kind of shift a little bit and see that this is the point where many people get hung up on Christianity. And if you, if you see it rightly, it makes total sense. You just have to be humble enough to recognize it. right? 
Orthodox Christianity has always said, has always professed that Christ is the only way to the Father. He's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we live in an age that has a very hard time accepting the truth of Christ. Why? Well, they don't like his exclusivity. Where Jesus says, I'm the only way. There is no other ways. There's not many, many ways, and we're all kind of going to the same place. And someone's going to say, well, what about the other religions, right? Well, they were born in a Muslim country. They were born wherever. And people have a hard time swallowing this fact. They'll, they'll say things like, aren't we all on just different paths? Like there's this religion over there and there's this religion. And we're all on these different paths, all leading towards the same God, though. We're all coming to this one God, the Father, aren't we? And Jesus says, no, no, actually. He says, I am the way. Right? He doesn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life to live. He says, I am the way. And let's just think about what he's saying there. When Jesus says, I am, let's just stop there and recognize that I am is actually tying its roots back into this Old Testament understanding of who God is. When God told Moses in the burning bush, who? Who, who sent you, he says, or who, who should I say is sending you? And he tells Moses, I am that I am, or I am who I am. So Jesus, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, first of all, he's saying, I'm God, okay? I am God. And then further, I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. Further, no one, not any single person, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes it as clear as it could be. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. But how can he say this? How can this be true? How can Jesus uh, say that no one can come to the Father except through him? Why not Buddha? Right? Why not through spiritual enlightenment, as New Age theology would tell us? Why not just my own works? Why can't I just earn my way to the Father? Why can't I be a good enough person? If God's so loving, why doesn't he just accept me for who I am? You heard that before? What kind of a father wouldn't just love me for who I am? I've heard it before. You've probably heard it before. This, these are the kind of objections that people are going to bring to us. But the answer to all of these questions is the same thing. Sin. That's why. That's why you can't come to the Father. Sin is a big problem. Sin is why you can't come to the Father any other way but Jesus. And this is actually the defining and distinguishing mark of Christianity. This is what makes us Christians. We believe in a God who self-sacrifices for us that we might be able to be saved. Okay? And unless you can get over that fact that you aren't good enough to be accepted by the Father on your own merits, you won't ever be saved. It's a hard pill to swallow. God doesn't love us because we're awesome. He loves us through the merits of the Son, through what Jesus has done, through his perfection, not your perfection. It's a humbling thing to think about. It's pure humility on our part, but guess what? It's also pure humility on God's part, that he wants to identify with us. He wants to send his son who will be sin for us. That's that's a stepping down, leaving the high throne of heaven to come and dwell with human beings and say I'm going to be sinful in a sense. I'm going to I'm going to die on a cross and be counted as a sinner. I'm not actually going to be a sinner. I'm going to identify with my people because I love them so much. And ironically, though, the world says, well, Jesus is prideful because he claims to be this one way and this one truth and this one life, right? 
His exclusivity is translated as bigotry. Well, Jesus is just a big. He says he's the only way. Who does he think he is? Right? That's kind of the way that people look at this. Or his exclusivity is completely ignored by the people, and they try to separate him from Christianity. Well, they would say, well, Christians have really gone astray. Jesus is this hippie Jesus who just accepts people and their sin. We need to get back to that kind of Jesus. Right? But here's the thing. Both of these ways of looking at Jesus are missing something very big. What is that? It's sin. Sin's still an issue in either one of these views. Regardless, sin is the beaming issue that has to be fully considered before you come to the Father. Now, think about this. What other religion has a gospel that says that uh, the one you worship identified with your sin that you might be saved from it? That's a humble God that we have right here who's going to save us because of the action that he's doing towards us. That's the kind of fatherly love and care and pursuit after us that we believe in as Christians. Now, nearly all religions require holiness on your part to be accepted by the divine. Now, that's different. That's different than what we're talking about in the Christian gospel. They say you need to be good. You need to be perfect. And God will accept you on that basis. Right? So your level of perfection or obedience is the basis of your acceptance by God, by the divine, whatever that figure is. But Christianity says, no, you could never do that. Even if you tried to do that, you would fail at it. And that's why God gave us the law, to show us you are sinful. He says, here's the Ten Commandments. Guess what? It's going to reveal to you that your heart is sinful. You can't do that. The law could never save. Only Jesus can save. And the law is actually going to be the schoolmaster that leads you towards Christ. It's not your way to live uh, to where you can be saved and you can earn your own salvation. And this is the path that we go on. If you just follow these rules, then you'll be saved and then you'll be accepted by the Father. That's not the gospel. You need payment for your sins, not laws, not more education. You need atonement. Something's got to give. You need some kind of reconciliatory act. And that reconciliatory act happened on the cross when Jesus went to go prepare his body as a sacrifice to make that place for us to where we could meet with God. You need someone to go and do that work for you. Jesus has to go to the Father's house and make that preparation for you or else you cannot walk in the Father's house. You can't go there. You can't have that intimate, close relationship with the Father unless Jesus goes and prepares the way for you. Amen. So as we're closing this morning, we've been answering a lot of questions, and I hope by now you're, you're starting to get the big picture here. The, the answer to troubled hearts is the abiding presence of Jesus. He tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay? And it's not just the disciples, though, who are troubled in life by the idea of separation with God. This is actually a universal problem. It wasn't just the 12 that had this issue. It's, it's a universal problem. Everyone's heart is troubled if they can't answer the question, do you have peace with God? That bothers everyone. If they don't understand how they might have access to him, it will cause you mental turmoil. Your heart will be troubled. You will be in maybe even a state of depression. There's nothing more fundamentally disturbing than this, than your relationship with God that has a big question mark on it. What do we think of that? And atheists, they rage in their pain over this very question. They'll say things like, if God is real, why, is it, why doesn't he just show himself to me? Why, if God is really up there, why hasn't he just shown himself to me? And like Philip, they say, show us the Father and it's enough. I just want to see it. I just want to see the Father. If he would just give me some sign, if he would just put something here for me, if there was just something I could grasp onto and touch, then I would believe. 
And Jesus stands through the ages saying the exact same thing that he told to Philip to us today, to your atheist friend, to maybe even you who are sitting out there this morning. Have I been with you so long and you still don't understand? How many Christians have come to you and told you about me, about Jesus, about what I've done for you, about the works that I've done in the world? If you don't believe me, if you don't believe the Christian, at least believe the works throughout the ages. Believe this great testimony that I'm giving to you, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been here all along. Jesus, his presence has been with us all along. We are his hands and his feet. We go and share people, uh, share the gospel with people all the time. And Jesus is telling the world, let not your hearts be troubled. And my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through the Son. And if you think that you're going to go there, going to the Father's house, you had better make preparations first. If you think that you're going to go one day to the Father's house and meet him, and you haven't gotten ready yet, there are no preparations for you. That is a scary place to fall into the hands of the Lord. That's that holy place that people tie ropes on the people's feet because they are unwilling to go there because it's a sacred place. Okay, But that's the offer, isn't it? That's the offer of the gospel this morning. Believe in God. Believe in me also, Jesus says. You can have peace. You can can have your hearts be eased. You don't have to be in mental turmoil. You can have peace with God. Believe on the Father. Believe on the Son. And you will be saved. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You can be at rest in your mind today. And if you haven't done that, if there's anyone in this room that you're just sitting there and you're like, wow. That's the gospel, and I don't think it really even clicked till now. And you're sitting in your seat, and you're wondering, what do I do? The answer is believe. It's, it's, it's simply believe. And some have asked before, well, why don't you have altar calls? Well, here's the answer why I don't have altar calls. Where is the altar now? It's right here. The invitation is to you right here, right now. You don't have to come forward. There is no new temple now. The only place that there is a temple is in Jesus, and you meet with him right here internally. You can meet with God in the new temple of Jesus. You can come to the Father's house today when you place your faith in Jesus, who goes before us to make preparations for us on the cross that we might be welcomed into the house of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you give us an example of your fatherly love. Or as I look at this passage, I just, I just personally think about the things that we can learn from you as a good father. Lord, I pray that the fathers in this room, um, if nothing else from this sermon, might just see that you're a good dad, that you love us well, that you care for us, that you are a God that is not passive. You are an active, loving, pursuing father. Lord, I pray that we would see your heart as a father, but Lord, we pray also that we would see your son Jesus and his sacrificial love for us that gives us a true picture of what love looks like. He who lays down his life, Lord's table, I'd like to ask our elders to come forward now as we come and partake of the body and the blood of the Lord, the, the body that Jesus provides.